Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today's guest is Frank King. Woo! Frank is here to talk about something super fun. Oh, yeah. Something that we all just like love to talk about. And I guess here's a quick warning for the listeners. There's going to be some, you know, some conversation about some potentially sensitive topics for some people. If you have little ears in the car, if you might not want to have to answer those questions later, this might be a great one to come back and listen to or slap some earbuds in because we're going to talk about suicide today. Yes. Which and, makes strong emotions, so be careful. Yeah. And and if you have a, a curious six-year-old, this might not be a conversation you want to have with them yet. That's up to you. Just want to give everybody a heads up. How you doing today, Frank? Uh, I am busier than a hooker at a four-way stop. Oh, man. that's That's busy. Well, she hopes it's busy so she can eat today. That's correct. <laughs> well, we were uh, we were just looking up information like we always do. We are looking for things to help people. Uh-oh. One of the things I found is is just the the, the prevalence of of this topic in the foster care system. Uh, I forget the incident rates of suicide for the average population, but attempts are at about three times that on kids who've been in the foster care system and. I think ideation is three times rate and, and attempts are at four times rate. I think that's the numbers that I looked up this morning. And I was like, that's, that's a lot, you know, that that's a high percentage. So who better to talk about it than somebody who talks about suicide and manages to do it in an entertaining way. We've yeah. got a, a Ted, a Ted speaker with us here today. So Frank, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe how suicides impacted your own life? Well, I am a, I was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. I've been a speaker and comedian full-time for 34. I have five TEDx talks. Actually, I've been selected seven times. Two of them I couldn't make because I had full fee speaking obligation the same day. And I was putting a trailer together for my TEDx coaching and I, I said into the camera, wait a minute, I got, I've turned down more TEDx talks than most people have. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's incredible. He said bragging. I I live with two mental illnesses, major depressive disorder, better known colloquially as depression, and something far more rare, the uh, chronic suicidal ideation. And chronic suicidal ideation means for me and people in my tribe. The option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. Well, I say small, had a car breakdown a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbid. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That is suicidal ideation, which may sound odd to some of your listeners. However, every time I've spoken, keynoted or trained in the last six years, except for one time, somebody in the audience had chronic suicidal ideation, sometimes more than one person. They didn't know it had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak because of the way their brain worked and, and all alone. And I had a young woman come up to me after a college presentation and say, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but it made me weak. How did it make you weak? 
She said, you know your story about your car, get it fixed, buy a new one, kill yourself. I go, yeah. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I, I didn't know it had a name. I thought I was just some kind of freak. I was all alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not alone and I wept. So there, there may be people, even clinicians. I've, I've spoken to clinicians. I go, I've got, I've got chronic suicidal ideation. And they stare at me like George Bush at the New York Times crossword puzzle. And <laughs> because apparently it's not in the DSM. So if it's not in the DSM, it doesn't exist. Uh, oh, yeah. So we may have actually saved a life today in, in the last 90 seconds because hopefully if someone has it, now realize it has a name. They're not just some kind of freak. They're not all alone. My hope is we've steered them far enough off the path of suicide that, you know, they'll live a normal life. And hopefully they will speak to their therapist. Because I've had this happen before. Somebody comes up, I go, do you have a therapist yet? Well, you need to make an appointment, I think, and, and tell them all you learned today. And for God's sake, tell them you Googled it. Don't tell them you learned it from a comedian. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's, those are my two mental illnesses. I, I, it runs in my family more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. If you want to know the story, I'll spare you. But my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh, L-A-U-G-H, A Matter of Laugh or Death. I, I cover that story. And and uh, and I, I myself in 2010, after speaking business dropped off 80%, we filed a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Which, by the way, gets a nervous laugh from the audience. Like, should we be laughing at this? And then I followed up with a true story. A friend of mine was in the audience. He never heard me say that out loud that I didn't pull the trigger. He comes up afterwards. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? So I myself, and that's, that's when I began to consider speaking on suicide uh, as a keynote. I've been a funny speaker from 1985 when I started in stand-up full-time to, to that point in the recession in 2010. And I always wanted to have something, you know, significant to talk about, something to teach people, learning objectives, takeaways, action items. I just had no idea what I, what I had that I could teach anybody and after that close call look at my family history taking some some uh, getting some education on suicide prevention and then doing that first tedx talk i did the first tedx talk so i could rebrand because everyone thought of me as a funny person so at age 56 i did the tedx and nobody knew my family my wife my friends nobody had any idea i was depressed and suicidal so i came out on stage on the ted stage as depressed and suicidal my wife's getting ready to hit the button to play once it went up on YouTube. I said, no, hold on. Don't hit the button. I need to tell you half a dozen things you're about to learn about me. And I just don't want you to learn it there watching YouTube. Right? Because she had no idea. So, but that gave me the, that was the beginning of my rebranding. I could prove that I could talk about something serious. And what I discovered preparing for the talk was that even though one person dies by suicide every 11 minutes in the U.S. on average, Hardly anybody, hardly anybody talks about depression thoughts of suicide. However, if you bring it up, everybody's got a story. Themselves, a loved one, a friend, a college roommate. So it, I, I realized there was a niche there just in which to speak, especially being a man. 
men are notoriously shy about sharing things that are have to do with emotions. Um, and I, I, I was raised in the Southeast, and, and you know, big boys don't cry. Yeah, we don't have emotions. That's the rule. Yeah, that's right. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and, and you know, it's not it's not just uh, mental health and men. I've had several friends die of prostate and colon cancer, men, and those are eminently treatable if you catch them early. But men tend to let their physical health go as well. Same reason, you know, no colonoscopy, no PSA test. It's it's a shame, but that's just how. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that my co-authors and I are putting together a series of four books on men's mental health. Two of them are out. The third will come out this year. The fourth next year. They're anthologies, twelve stories in each book, twelve guys. Kind of like chicken soup for the tortured man's soul. And we asked men what kind of advice they want in the book. And they said, we want real men, real stories, real problems, and real solutions. How are they coping? So that's what we did. Because men tend to take advice from men. My wife would tell you that she could give me a Nobel Prize winning idea. And I would poo-poo it. If the mailman told me the same thing, I'm all over. So story men are wired. So that's where we are. I am. Um, did you hear that, Amanda? That's oh, the way we're wired. It's not I, my fault. I heard it. That's why I throw bricks. It's hard wiring. Yeah, it's hard wiring. When we first got <laughs> together, I had to explain to her once that it's better for you if you will just write a note, wrap it around a brick, and then chuck it at my head. Yeah. As effective, if not we more. have several bricks here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she bought a pallet. So that that's my... Uh, I started out... I started comedy in fourth grade, told my first joke. Everybody laughed. Teacher was hysterical, and I thought I'm going to be a comedian. And then 12th grade did a talent show, one. And then just by chance after college, moved to San Diego where there's a branch of the world famous comedy store, the one on Sunset. And I went to open mic night in five minutes. I did my five minutes. Halfway through, I thought to myself, I'm home. I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. But, and then a year later, my girlfriend, now my wife of 33 years, went on the road, uh, gave up our apartment, jobs. And just hit the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. And Your wife, how long? Big pardon? How long have you been married? We've been married 33 years. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. That, that's three comic marriages because, you know, living with comedians is not the easiest thing. I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> I got a friend who won't shut it off, and all of his three ex wives love him to death. I think he just wore them out. <laughs> I mean, it happens. I can't if I live with him, I have to duct tape him to the bed and put a sock in his mouth because he never shuts up. <laughs> we but, feel like that. Yes, we do. So yeah, that, that's that's um, just, that's my story in a nutshell. Part of the fun. <laughs> well, I know you that, that when we talked before, you had mentioned that your wife had some experience in foster care. Um, we obviously have have a deep amount of experience in foster care. And, you know, that that's something that, that ties deeply into that system is all the trauma that kids experience. You know, most of these kids who come into care don't come into care just because, you know, it was a thing to do this weekend. Well, no, and, life is sunshine and roses. Right. But yeah. then you, you dig into their deeper story and you find a lot of scary stuff in there. People have been through a lot, especially at young ages. And yeah. that seems to lead into a lot of the problems with mental health which can lead towards suicidal ideation, all that sort of thing. So, you know, we have a lot of kids who are dealing with a lot of stuff. And so, you know, I think I think the question your friend asked is really appropriate. You know, when you, when you find yourself in that place, when, when you're walking down that road, 
what is the thing that, that helps you decide that the trigger is just too heavy to pull at the moment? Oh, uh, well, I, I didn't kill myself because I had a million dollar life insurance policy. Uh, the problem is, in that particular policy, they have what's called a two-year, well, it's um, the nickname for it is two-year suicide policy. It's actually called the incontestability policy. Meaning you could, if you're a smoker, let's say, and you get a policy and you lie to the company and you go, no, I don't smoke. And if they don't figure it out in two years, at two years of a day, if you die of lung cancer, smoking three packs of Marlboro's a day, I'm sorry, you had two years to figure that out. And suicide, same thing. If you, you know, if you know you're suicidal, or if you did, you had two, you didn't, you had two years to figure it out. So I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but in them, in there's a three-legged stool for suicidal ideation. The first leg is withdrawing socially, sometimes physically, moving away. Second one is you cross that mental barrier that you're willing to take your own life regardless of the pain. And the third is something called burdensomeness. You hear people say that suicide is self-reject. Well, from the outside looking in, it is. From the inside looking out, oftentimes, and I was included in this, this, this class of people, I believe the world would be better off without me because we just filed bankruptcy and we were on the verge of losing our farm and everything else. And I had a million dollar life insurance policy. However, I'd only had it 22 months, not two years. So I had to wait 60, 61 days before I pulled the trigger. Otherwise, they would just return the premiums to my wife and not the million dollars in proceeds. So I felt, uh, you know, I was literally worth more dead than alive. And I felt that burdensomeness, she'd be better off. She'd be brokenhearted, but she wouldn't be broke. The benefit of suicidal, uh, chronic suicidal ideation is because I knew I could do it at any time. Waiting two months and a day was no big deal because I knew it two months and a day I could pull the trigger. And so that's, but fortunately, by, by two months and a day, I don't even remember that day. Life must have gotten a little bit better. The bankruptcy went through, the phone call stopped. And, you know, I guess I had, I had broken the service, taken a deep breath and figured I could go on. But it's, it's, and it's, it's ironic in that my chronic suicidal ideation keeps me alive because I know if pain gets too bad, I can end it. And a lot of people don't realize that many, many, if not most suicides are not about killing yourself, it's about ending the pain. As with, I'm sure, foster kids, if they're in a horrible situation, as my wife was, physically and sexually abused, verbally abused, um, you know, um, horrible father, um, passive mother who also didn't like her, didn't want kids, you know, wish she never got married. So, you know, that's my lovely wife just wanted to end the pain that she, when I remember when I met her, she had scars on her wrist where she had attempted. Uh, fortunately, she didn't attempt, uh, you know, um, up the arm, but, and then she turned up to, to drugs, uh, weed and other things to, you know, to cope. And then fortunately, at some point she got into the foster care system. And had a series of foster moms and dads. And, you know, I'm sure as with any business, there were good ones and bad ones. And fortunately, um, one of our elementary school teachers got went to the foster care program, said, I want to be a foster parent. And they said, okay. She goes, on one condition. What's the condition? I get, I get Wendy as my foster child. And they said, okay. So, and that was the first unconditional love she'd ever 
you know, experience. Plus, there were rules, he would tell you. You know, the family had rules, but love was unconditional. And that probably saved her life, and they're still friends to this day. Yeah, that's that's an all too common story that uh it's it's a danger that, that kids are always always subjected to in the foster care system. There's always a moment of trauma happening at every every given moment around the world somewhere. And these kids have experienced so much and I I just I, I'm always wondering what the way to help a kid is who is in that place because some of these kids are, are young. Let me get this right. My stepsister's daughter. Yes, my stepsister's daughter. We have a family with a lot like relationship algebra, so I always have to think a little bit to make sure I get the relationship. In family my math. Yeah. <clears throat> um, my stepsister had a nasty disease called Huntington's, and we lost her a few years back. And then, what was it? I think two years ago, maybe three years ago, her daughter was going through some serious suicidal ideation, some some depression, and eventually they she she hung herself. And um and when we lost her to suicide as well, and she was thirteen or fourteen, I believe, years old. And it just seems like it touches every kid. And I don't, I, I don't know that there's a blanket answer, but is there anything that that you can you can talk to that to help kids as they see this thing going in their life that looks too big to overcome? Well, and it's not just foster kids. I have my best friend in North Carolina attempted a, at age four, age eight, and age twelve. Diagnosed eventually with living with bipolar disorder, uh, and I, I believe I believe his mom was bipolar. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just, just looking back, um, and I think a it's important. People go, "What do I say to somebody who's depressed?" Well, don't say anything. Start by just actively listening. Uh, B, do not minimize the pain. You know, things will get better. You got so much to live for. You know, tomorrow's another day. That's not about tomorrow. Well, for those of us oftentimes who are experiencing that, can't see beyond today. They feel like it will always be as painful as it is today. I think uh, diagnosis and evaluation of mental health, I always recommend a mental health evaluation to find out is it situational depression? Is it clinical depression? Is it uh, bipolar disorder? What is exactly going on? Second, if medication is indicated, then I would recommend medication. If the first recommended medication doesn't work, I would give the child a cheek swab DNA test with psychotropics, where they compare the, the young person's DNA with a long list of, let's say, antidepressants. Pick, pick the one or two that are gonna work best with their metabolism. So you get a lot, of, lot less of the going on, doesn't work, taper off, going on, doesn't work, taper off that's discouraging it's painful it's an awful process yeah and then therapy if it's you know if it's indicated if it's available um i would say therapy and on the flip side of that i did a tedx talk called mental with benefits the evolutionary advantages of mental health because i kept meeting people who were mentally ill and if they weren't completely dysfunctional they always had some kind of superpower you know, they were artistic, musical, great writers, comedians, dear Lord. A friend of mine's got a joke about comedians. The two kinds of comedians, diagnosed, undiagnosed. <laughs> I, I think my comic ability, imagination, and, and you know, uh, writing ability, whatever, is just the flip side of my depression, thoughts, of suicide. It's all the same wiring. It's the way my brain processes. And then my TEDx talk, I said, look, here's the deal. 
What, what if those of us living with mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if you can convince a child, yes, you have a, a mental illness, but here's what they never tell you. You, you have a corresponding mental ableness that your peers can't touch. So the idea is you treat the mental illness, certain medication, whatever, and then you wrap your arms around whatever mental ableness they have and celebrate it and energize it. And that, that hopefully will change the frame for the child and for their peers, producing stigma and bullying and eventually suicide. So if, if it turns out they have a clinical illness, there may be some sort of ability 30 Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. are now hiring people on the on the spectrum with autism for their special abilities and paying them handsomely. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. I think that's, and I think each child's IEP, individual education plan, mm -hmm. should be truly individual. Let's say a kid's got OCD. Then why not make sure they're in the STEM program, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, every one of those, those disciplines, every problem to solve in those has one right answer, ideal for some OCD. Uh, and then steer them in a career path where they'll end up with an industry that values precision, engineering, math, you know, engineering, banking, architecture, um, where they really, precision to detail is rewarded hands. Now, if they're dyslexic, you know, STEM is just ridiculous because it's letters and numbers moving around on a page. But um, multi-level complex tasks, the humanities, the arts, uh, that's, that's, and I think the, the, not only curriculum should be adjusted to the child, but the teaching method. I got a friend from my time on the cruise ship who was a music teacher, instruments, brass. And he said the best students he had were the ones with ADD, ADHD. The problem was, you strap them in a chair for 50 minutes. First 10 minutes, they get better. Next 40 minutes, they're spending so much energy just trying to sit still. So on a whim, he bought an egg timer. And he set up for 10 minutes and told the young person, look, we're going to practice scales for 10 minutes. And then we'll go do something else. So 10 minutes, egg timer goes off. Now we're going to practice our breathing for 10 minutes. Egg timer goes off. Now we're going to practice those two pieces you're playing at the concert on Saturday. Egg timer goes off. It was amazing. The child knowing that whatever they're doing would come to an end in 10 minutes and they change tasks. They were able, they didn't have to worry about trying to sit still, you know, and concentrate. They, so I think both the education plan and the and the way the curriculum is taught should vary by child. Some kids, you know, I don't think every child is ready for first grade at age six. Why is age six an magic number for first grade? Amen. Could be seven, could be five, who knows? So yeah, and you know, I understand with large numbers of children, it's kind of like a factory system. It's gotta be, you know, you can only do so much individually. But I think the interesting thing in today's world, sitting in the middle of COVID stuff and virtual schooling, I have a, a young boy, he's not been diagnosed. He's five. And if you want a picture of ADHD, I can show you what it looks like. Yeah. He he is he is wild. And and as you as you're talking about that, 
I'm sitting here thinking about our little guy, Frankie. Um, he would probably really benefit from something like that because getting him to sit still for more than 10 minutes requires like more than a whole roll of duct tape. We've had to upgrade to Gorilla Tape to get him <laughs> in the chair. Well, yeah, I mean, with virtual schooling, so we our little ones are at home and I'm schooling them, Zoom meetings are just, it's a killer for him to get him to sit there. And yeah. so, I mean, we have a box that I have different sensory toys in and just different things. And, you know, we have found over the years, you know, different kids learn differently. They all need different things. Some kids are visual, some are audio, you know, it's just, it's different across the board and you can't treat them the same because it just doesn't work. Yeah, that's, and, and like I said, and, and there's an evolutionary element, by the way. I tell the audience, look, here's the deal. ADD, ADHD, it's now considered a, you know, a disability. But back in the time of the cavemen and women, having your head on a swivel was a survival technique, survival skill. You know, it's very funny, or it's intended to be funny, squirrel. But you know what? Velociraptor, that's important information. Oh, yeah, shiny. <laughs> yeah, so I figured, I told you, right, look, if I, back in the day, if I, caveman, you know, I'm running, running things, I would have those people working as pickets and, you know, and, and scouts and, you know, all the way around the tribe as we move from winter lands to summer lands or whatever, because their heads on a swivel, they're always looking for, and by the way, dyslexics, have generally have better peripheral vision and most of us see pretty much straight ahead. We can see the stuff on the, you know, the exterior, but we focus straight ahead. Dyslexics tend to focus in a panoramic fashion. And they also have the amazing ability to pick out the anomaly. The joke I wrote was never play where's Waldo with a dyslexic for money because you're going to lose. <laughs> and if I was walking from summer, you know, grounds to winter grounds in my tribe, I would have the dyslexics up front scanning the tree line. Because what looks like a bush to the rest of us, <laughs> that ain't no bush, man. That's a guy with leaves stuck all over his body. I'm telling you. So these were all survival skills back then, you know, eons ago. Uh, dyslexic, um, bipolar. Anthropologists figure pretty much everybody was bipolar back then for a couple of reasons. They had four months in the summer to gather enough stuff for eight months in the winter. So they were uber hunters and gatherers. They were hypersexual because you have to keep the numbers up in the tribe. And they go all summer long, just like 60. And then as the days grew shorter and the nights grew colder, they would wind down into a depressive state and just hunker down until, you know, the spring when the days began to get longer and, you know, nights began to get warmer and they would repeat the process. So those things that we think of, many of them as disabilities back then were survival. But we call it a disability today. Yes. And again, I think we should treat the disability but if there is an ability a special ability then i think we should wrap our arms around energize you know encourage uh that whatever that that is you know because think of harry potter he's a little weird half muggle half human and with a lightning bolt whatever but he's got he's got a, he's got special powers what kid doesn't want to be you know to have special powers like that I think that if we can convince them that whatever ability it is they have, whether it's artistic or musical or comedy or whatever, you know, that their peers can't touch, then I think we, we, could, we could go a long way. And I think education should begin in middle school at age appropriate, with age appropriate, you know, uh, curriculum and talk about depression, thoughts of suicide, 
you know, uh, bipolar, you know, it, like like they teach sexual, sexual education, I guess. I don't know if they still do that, but, you know, teach kids about mental mental health and mental illness. And for parents, by the way, there's a great organization called mentalhealthfirstaid.org. Mentalhealthfirstaid.org. They have an eight-hour class. There's a youth class and an adult class. And it's kind of mental health 101. They cost anywhere from nothing to about 25 bucks for the eight hours. It costs them lunch. If you go to mentalhealthfirstaid.org, put in your zip code and 25-mile radius, I'll tell you where every class is within a 25-mile radius. I'm sure they're all by Zoom at this point. Yeah. But, but again, almost cost almost nothing. And, and you, get a, you get a binder when you're done. So let's say and it goes anywhere from depression through non-legal self-harm, like cutting, biting, burning, all the way to suicide. So a parent, you got a binder, and you, you find out your child or somebody they know is cutting then you go and look and see what the symptoms are and what the solutions are. Because I think if, if we could teach young people about mental illness, signs and symptoms of mental illness, they could look out and convince them that they are in the, in the uh, mental health vernacular gatekeepers. They're looking out. They're looking out for everybody else. You know, see something, say something. If, um, and there was a young woman daughter of a friend of mine who noticed something about one of her peers in her class, a young woman. And the thing she was saying, posting on Facebook, and she was really worried that the young woman was going to end her life. So she marched, she took it upon herself to march down to the counselor's office and go, look, hey, you know, this is this is what she's been writing in her timeline, and this is what she's been saying, and somebody needs to step up and, you know, get her some help. And sure enough, she was struggling. I believe she ended up, uh, you know, with clinical depression and thoughts of suicide. And she's alive today because one of her classmates, you know, sometimes parents don't want to see those kind of things in their children because A, they feel like it's their fault. B, they don't want the child to be anything but perfect. So they, they go into something of a, you know, denial phase. Well, in the foster care system, a lot of parents come in with this savior idea when they first step into it. And they think, if I just love this kid, it'll be fine and it'll all be better. And we hate to see, you know, this kid struggling and that I can't fix it. And that's another reason why it tends to be ignored. Yeah. And, you know, parents are in the fix-it business. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm a mom. I can fix it. Uh, so, yeah, I think education for the adults and education for the young people age appropriate. And I think it should be a continuing, you know, that there's a, there's a class in middle school, there's a class in high school. Um, class in college, I think it should be required because three college students a day, every day, kill themselves. Three a day, every day. Wow. Why not require the students in college, just like when you got to take gym to get your two credits to, you know, to graduate. The state of Washington, by the way, is now mandating that anybody in the healthcare business, chiropractors, dentists, hygienists, doctors, nurses, social workers, have to have three hours of suicide prevention CE to renew their licenses in 2021 all of them because that way the chiropractor the doctor the dentist the hygienist are all on the lookout for signs and symptoms i speak to dentists frequently because that occupation has a high rate of suicide and i said here's the deal if your patient comes in sits down in the chair and you put a little bib on and you notice that their hair's you know not as clean as it usually is clothes are a little you know dirty 
and they haven't been taking care of their dental hygiene as they would have done in the past. One of the signs of depression is letting your personal hygiene go because you just can't drag yourself out of bed in the morning to get the shower and run a load of water. So you can you notice that, you know, again, see something, say something. That's so yes, I think it's the more the more I think the more people who knew the signs and symptoms of depression, mental illness, thoughts of suicide, the the better. Uh, there's an outfit called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer, QPRinstitute.com. It's like CPR. You know, if if you're going to have a heart attack, have it in Seattle. One out of four people in Seattle know CPR. QPR wants those same numbers. People will be educated on the signs and symptoms and then what to do with mental illness and thoughts of suicide. Because, you know, if you have a heart attack, the sooner somebody starts pumping on your chest, and the sooner somebody gets the uh, AED, you know, the electronic panels that are, they're walking through the park, and the sooner the paramedics and professional help arrive, the sooner they get them to the hospital where the cardiologist is working on, the better the long-term life expectancy. Same thing with Mental illness, the sooner somebody realizes that somebody's in a mental health crisis, the sooner they can get them, you know, to, you're basically a mental health first responder. You're not there to fix them. You're just there to make sure that they're safe and then get them and turn them over to the professionals as happens with, with um, CPR. You know, you know, somebody has a heart attack, you do CPR, you bring them around, you're not going to do a bypass right there. <laughs> we'll leave that to the I hope not. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure there's a, a YouTube video where we'll teach you how to do it, but. That's the idea behind QPR is that they, that organization wants at least one in four people in the U.S. to know. I was at a, a function in uh, the Chicago area. There were three or four hundred people there. And, and the table behind me, a guy collapses, fell right out of his chair. And everybody freezes, except the comedian. <laughs> <laughs> I would go running over. I go, hey, man, okay, can you hear me? Yes. Can you see me? Yes. Uh, do you have any pain down your left arm? or underneath your chin. Because down the left arm is where heart attack symptoms present. If it gets to your chin right here, that's there, you know, right there, right there in the chin line, jawline, that's really serious. No, no, no pain. Uh, I said, I think he's, I said, are you diabetic? He said, yes, I'm diabetic. I said, I think he's short on insulin. So <laughs> there's everybody staring at the comedian diagnosing the guy who just hit the floor. <laughs> But the fact that I, I, I've had two aortic valve replacements, double bypass, heart attack, three stents, I'm very familiar with heart attack. And, you know, and, and not so much diabetes, but I figured it out. And, but if, if, if everybody had, you know, would, would A, take the training and doesn't take that long and B, step up like I did, get up off your ass and get, get, get to the person and get them stable and get them professional help. Um, and I asked him, by the way, it was a very conservative group. I said to for cognition, I said to him, hey man, who's president? And this is uh, in Trump's first term. Who's the president? He goes, not Hillary Clinton. I go, okay, you're fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think education would, would uh, save lives. Again, because you know, there's a stigma surrounding mental illness and a whole separate stigma surrounding thoughts of suicide. And people just don't want to talk about it. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of where alcoholism was 50, 60 years ago. A lot of people still think mental illness is a moral failing and a character flaw, as they did 
as they did with substance abuse disorder 40, 50 years. There's a reason that Alcoholics Anonymous started off anonymous because there was that, that perception that it was a character flaw and a moral failure. You know, and, and you could just you could just quit drinking. And people say to me, I've had said to me, you, you need to choose joy. If you're not talking about liquid the you know, dishwashing detergent, I don't think that's gonna happen. Don't you think, don't you think if I could choose joy, I would have done that decades ago? Come on. But that a lot of people, you know, became a comedian. Right. Um, yeah, you kind of did. I did, yes. And you know, people go, "Did the comedy come first? The comedy definitely came first. But I was hardwired for the depression and suicide anyway. I just used the comedy to make it more digestible. You know, they call it comic relief for a reason. And there's a psychological principle. You tell somebody something. If you tell somebody something really serious, and you follow a little comic relief, they're mentally prepared for the next piece of serious business. So, and, and if I can make them cry with my story, because I get a little choked up, and then make them laugh, I take it from pole to pole, the impact on them, the emotional impact, the, 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 the chances are they'll remember what they heard, at least the broad, you know, the broad strokes, is far better than just having to sit through 90 minutes of morbidity and mortality. Well, let me ask you this question. I know you said that, that your wife didn't know anything about it until the TEDx talk came out. How did that? How did that play out when when you told her your your story? I mean, did that did that strengthen you guys' relationship? Was it a difficult thing for her to digest? Uh, no, she knew I'd been kind of moody on occasion, but she thought it was just carbohydrate related. You know, you hey, bring a glass of orange juice. Um, it actually strengthened the relationship because, and I advise people to do this when they're ready. Come out to people that love you and uh, you know will understand and, and be there for you when things go bad. She, now she knows that if I'm in a bad mood, it's not something she did. She'll ask me, are you cycling down? Or I'll tell her, look, I'm having a really bad day. I'm ready to depressed. So she doesn't get blindsided about it. She doesn't, she doesn't think it's her. And, and, and we've come to the point where we can joke about it, which is very helpful for me. One of the things that triggers my depression is disappointing her or anybody whose opinion I have on it. So I'll do something stupid and I'll go, honey, you mad at me? She goes, no, no, honey, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Oh, <laughs> so we can actually laugh about it, which, which helps take the edge off. Yeah, and, and I don't always share with her when I'm depressed. One day she was leaving for work and I was really depressed. And I'm in the yard doing some yard work. She's getting the car to go and I'm thinking, I'll tell her. And I'm like, you know what? If I tell her I'm depressed, she's not going to feel any better. I'm not going to feel, she's going to feel worse, actually, and I'm not going to feel any better. So why? So it wasn't the point of suicide. Um, I, and, and by the way, the, we should probably talk, probably talk about before we leave, signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not say, what to do. Like, you know, give, your, give your listeners their first a lesson in mental health first day. Absolutely. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. Yeah, it's yeah because here's the thing. Here's the good news. Eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent, which tells me they want somebody to notice something and step in. And nine out of ten people who are actively suicidal give hints that they're going to attempt in the last seven days before they do, which again tells me they want somebody to pick up on the hint and step in. So the trick is, because you hear people say this all the time, 
he never gave any indication. Why didn't he say something? I had no idea. He didn't never didn't didn't never no hints, no evidence. Well, it's kind of like we train German shepherds. And you hear somebody say, the dog bit me, never gave me any, any indication it was going to do it. Oh, yes, it did. First thing he did, froze. Second thing he did, their eyes go flat. Third thing, the ears go back. So the dog's throwing signals like, just don't come any closer. Please don't. I, don't, I really don't want to bite you. And then, of course, the hackles go up. That's the big one. But they missed, whoever got bitten missed all that. So with suicide, the people say never gave any indication. I'm guessing, unless they were that one or two out of 10 that wasn't going to, you know, was hell bent on dying, there were indications. You just have to know what you're looking for and looking at and listen for. I talk about that just in the ability to communicate with kids and other people. A lot of times it's, you know, I, I can speak Korean to you and it's not going <laughs> to matter much. You're not going to respond most likely. Oh. And I actually, one of the few people who actually know a little bit about Korean, I was in the army and they sent me to the, the linguist school to teach people that, you know, ah. that the, there's, the, there's the secret is, is I can know what it means, but if I don't know how to communicate what I'm trying to say to you, if we're speaking on a different plane, then you don't know what I'm saying. And it's the same thing there that if I don't know what I'm looking at in a kid uh, you know, and kids are so challenging because especially in the foster system, this kid might've been with you for a day or a month or, or three years. And so you have a different level of knowledge and experience with this kid and an ability to communicate and their willingness to communicate. And so being able to read those signs and symptoms can be a real, a real struggle. So what what sort of things do you usually see that that come out that are that are pretty decent indicators that we should at least you know raise our own hackles a little bit and start digging? Well, and I should tell you that every keynote that I do, I put my phone number on the screen. Myself, I tell the audience, look, if you're suicidal, call the suicide prevention lifeline, or now they have a text line. Text the word help seven four one seven four one. Because kids are more forthcoming in text, young people. Oh yeah, we got a text. <laughs> yeah. So I, I put my phone number on the screen and I said, look, if you're suicidal, call the suicide prevention lifeline. If you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person and here's my number. Because like the Korean is that the, the person and I speak the same language. We hear the same music. I'm, I'm far less likely to be judgmental or to sh what they call should all over them. You should do this and you should do that. I'm just there to co-sign whatever BS they're going through and listen. And so it's like the Korean, I speak the language I hear, you know, they, they don't have to explain to me what they're going through. I, you know, I, I understand completely. But here's a, here's a couple of prominent signs, signals of depression. I have trouble getting up in the morning. Rallies in the afternoon. So if kids having trouble getting, you know, getting up and getting catch the school bus or whatever, it seems in the afternoon they're full of beans. That's an indication. Um, socially isolated. Used to take a lot of joy in this social activity or that social activity back when we did social activities. <laughs> and, and they've withdrawn or they've withdrawn physically. You know, they just, you know, either they stay in their room, adults move. Um, and we already talked about one, letting their personal hygiene go because they can't drag themselves out of bed to get a shower and run a load of watch. By the way, I think there's a lot of situational depression happening in the world, in the U.S., because of the pandemic. A lot of people who are neuronormal, neurotypical, who've never been depressed, are depressed because of the uncertainty of it all. 
And what worries me is they've never been depressed. They have no idea what that feels like. They may not know why they can't get out of bed anymore. I've been doing podcasts after podcast after podcast, teaching neurotypical people how to survive. You need a self-care plan. You need to you know, practice gamification. You need a routine to, you know, it's in, in, and, and get diagnosed. You know, it may be short-term situational depression. You may need a little short-term med. Okay. The question comes up, what do you say to somebody who you believe is depressed after you notice these signs? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. You fat fish well. Put your big girl panties on. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what you do say is, I'm here for you and me. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I understand that depression is a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time to help you get the treatment. Now, here's the tough one. You have to ask them. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care uj we've got a group over there where we talk about foster care we talk about adoption and we talk about all the things related if your podcast player allows it you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads every tuesday a new episode comes out we'd love to see you next week now back to the show in no uncertain terms are you having thoughts of suicide if you can't ask that question, you find somebody who can. And let's say they're not forthcoming about their thoughts of suicide. How do you know they may be suicidal? Talk about death and dying. You're Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their music, their artwork, their writing. A friend of mine whose son took his own life, he was a musician and he wrote original songs, original lyrics. And he had a notebook in which he wrote you know, the, the lyrics. You would never leave that notebook anywhere his mother could find it and look at it. He would take it to the bathroom with him. And when he passed away, she, of course, got the notebook and his music, lived the lyrics with Phil. You know, if you if you were looking for a roadmap as to why it happened, it was all right there. But he wouldn't um, get your affairs in order. And for a young person, it can be something as simple as giving away prized possessions. Because they want to make sure those possessions go to the person they want them to go to when they're gone, the Xbox or whatever. Um, and giving away a pet is top of that pyramid. You want to make sure the pet is looked after. And of course, stockpiling medications or, or buying uh, a gun. By the way, three times as many women attempt as men, men tend to complete because they tend to use a gun. And the last one that and this is counterintuitive and I think extremely dangerous, is they've been depressed forever, and then for no apparent reason, they're happy. And Lord, you're happy because finally they're happy. Well, it may be they're happy because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain. There's that word again. They know the pain is finite. Now, let's say they are forthcoming. They go, yes, I'm having thoughts of suicide. What do you say? You say, do you have a plan? And if they say they have a plan, what is your plan? And the details, you need to get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone, you call the lifeline, the volunteer will do what they can, talk the phone into the hands of the person who's in crisis. And if, you know, it comes up all the time, when do you dial 911? If they're in immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, you got no choice but to dial 911. That will probably buy them 
an involuntary detention order, and three days, all expenses paid in a lovely gated mental health community with no belt or shoe strap. But they'll be alive anyway. Now, this is something a psychiatrist and I have added to that list of questions. It's not in a, not in a psychological text anywhere. Let's say the plan is not particularly well formed. They got a plan, but it's you know not really time, place, method. They just kind of you know well maybe I would you know um, hang myself or whatever. The next question I believe you should ask is okay, well are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then this is I think the most important question. Okay, well tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here. And in my case, I would tell you that I'm sort of like George Bailey and that's a wonderful life. After all those people come up to me after my presentation and I have, I have let them know that what they have has a name, they're not a freak and they're not all alone and perhaps steered them you know, off the path to suicide. If I were not here, if I took my own life, I would end up taking all those people with me who never had a chance to hear me assure them that they're not alone. A friend of mine goes, you can't live with that? I go, no, man, I can't die with it. So I just, that, that's, that's one of my whys, why I don't kill myself. Amanda's run off taking care of kids at the moment. But I, part of the reason this is such, such a, a topic that I think we need to talk about is we've had our, our own struggles in our family. As most of our listeners know, we lost our oldest daughter a few years ago to a nasty disease. And in that process, our two older sons are both teenagers, right? And throughout time, we've had kids who have struggled mightily with mental health. We had one kid who we did take down and give him that 72-hour vacation because he was he was talking about suicide. And here, here's the thing is, as a parent, we think we know what we're doing. We think we know what our kids are going through. He was just being a teenager, right? And then one morning, I get up from work and my phone has a notification that, it, that my, my YouTube thing has a comment or reply to my comment. And I'm, I'm like, what? I haven't commented on anything. I went and look and somebody's like, don't do it, man. You know, you know, talk to blah, blah. And this guy's like encouraging me not to kill myself. And I thought, this is weird. And a little bit of research and quickly I found that my son had gotten onto my YouTube account and oh, was commenting on a video somewhere and it was some suicidal ideation. And that threw us for a loop. I didn't know how to handle it. And so I we experienced that. I, I struggled hard. I, I, you know, we, we ended up walking the road, taking him down to the hospital, letting him get checked out. And we had to do a lot of education, you know, fast forward a few more years. I had a, one of my other sons who told me a story that, I mean, quite honestly, it, today it's, it, it's blown my socks off because he talks about having the plan, having the place, having the whole thing together. And, and as much as I've always been a guy who's not about my kids doing drugs, right? I'm pretty hard against that whole idea. I try and keep drugs away from my kids. And this is part of the reason I think this one really struck me was he told a friend that that's where he was going to, what he was going to go do. He had the time, he had the place, he had a gun. And his friend said, well, man, before you do that, I want you to try something real quick. If it doesn't work, that's, you know, do what you want. And the man had hand or the kid handed him a drop of acid. And as much as I hate to admit that that's what, what saved him, he had some, some experience that to this day, he, he, we've talked about it deeply. He talks about, I'll never deal with suicide ideation again because of what I went through and what I experienced. But these are kids who I knew were in hard times. They were in struggling times for sure. 
but I had no idea at that moment that they were that close to suicide. And these are kids that I know who've been in my house since they were little itty bitty and their teen, you know, they, they had both been in my house for, for over 10 years at that point, you know, 10, 15 years, depending on which kid. And we're dealing with kids who may have been in your house for, for six weeks. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the mistake businesses and some schools make is after a suicide, oftentimes they sweep it under the carpet. The person's there one day, gone the next. Problem is, everybody's got questions. Many people have survivor's guilt. You know, I had planned to go so-and-so with them, but I got tied up and I couldn't make it. You know, if I'd just been nicer to them, if I spoke to them in the elevator. So it's called suicide post-vengeance. Anybody who is anywhere close to a suicide, and the average suicide, I think it's 25 people are directly impacted at least. Those people need a session of suicide post-vengeance where you, you, you take a look, you ask everybody for their feelings and impressions. What, what's happened is, Everybody, chances are, had a piece of the puzzle that when put together completely and you step back, you can see it coming. But not everybody had every piece of the puzzle. It's sort of like that movie in the book, um, The Perfect Storm. The reader knows that the storms are approaching from three directions. It's going to be bad. But the, the guys on a little boat have no idea. But, you know, if, they, if you take a 10,000-foot view, you see, you see the storm coming. So that's what a friend of mine said. You put the puzzle together, everybody backs up, and you can see that this was probably going to happen. She calls it the tyranny of hindsight. But at least it answers questions, and you can talk through the survivor's guilt. And, uh, you know, I wish I'd been nicer to them. You know, just decode all that so that you can, so everybody can move on. Uh, but if you don't do that, especially with young people, they, they fill in the blanks as best they can with what happened. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it can be dangerous. It can be, and with kids oftentimes, the, you know, if one child, young person does it, you could find yourself in a cluster. You know, one person goes over that barrier or through that, you know, then you may have other ones in the, in the area, in their peer group. It's like cutting, you know, non-lethal self-harm. A young person is more likely to be cutting themselves if somebody in their peer group is doing it as well. So it's a lot about education at the proper, you know, the proper point. I think there's also a lot of stigma that goes along with it too. We had, well, we still have him because he's ours, but we had a child who was cutting and he was male. And it was very surprising to see that, you know, a lot of people think that that's just something that girls do. Yeah. And it's I, like a, I was kind of amazed by that. Anorexia and bulimia. Uh, I mean, I, I've known some wrestlers in my time. You know, and you got to make weight. Yeah. And so when people think anorexia and bulimia, they think women. But there are a goodly number of men who have, you know, that dis, is it dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia, that sounds right. Yep. There are, there are a goodly number of men who live with that as well. But again, it's a matter of education. And the, one of the reasons that I think I have an impact on audiences is a lot of people have an idea in their mind what mental illness looks and sounds like. And you got a guy up on stage who's a comedian, you know, obviously high functioning, in a good mood. You know, uh, I'm not what a lot of people would, if you ask them to describe 
somebody with mental illness. I'm, I wouldn't be there, you know, first. They wouldn't be describing me. It's a guy on the corner holding a sign, we'll work for food. You know, and that's fourth stage mental illness. The system has failed them all the way down the line. They're on, you know, probably on their way out. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's part of my job is to, there's actually something called Stand Up for Mental Health. It's a class. To me, uh, it's, it's for people who have mental illness and want to write and perform stand-up comedy based on their mental illness. And, the, and you have to have a, a diagnosis to get into the class. You have to have a diagnosis to teach the class. So it's part peer counseling, part, you know, comedy class. And then they perform, um, sometimes for money, but sometimes just community events, to, again, to destigmatize, to give people a different view. You know, public speaking terrifies people. So not only are they public speaking, but they're public speaking after, you know, on things, on mental illness, their own mental illness. I mean, that's powerful to see somebody get up on stage and, you know, come clean about their mental illness and make and make jokes of it. So. Yeah, I mean, I just, I remember, you know, it was like the world was stunned when Robin Williams took his life. You know, so many people, well, he, you know, he's so funny and... and People loved him. He had so much to live for. Yeah. I believe he was living with bipolar disorder. And then that's probably why he self-medicated. That's why I was in, you know, rehab all the time. And or oftentimes. And then he had heart surgery, which can make you even more depressed, I know, because I've had two of them. And then he had a Parkinson's like disease, I think, and his memory was going on top of that. And if you're an actor and your memory goes. Um, even though he had millions in the bank and millions of people loved him, you know, I imagine he just wanted to end the pain. Yeah, but I mean, people looked at him and they're like, oh, he has all these things going on for him. What, you know, and it's like we just we can't see beyond ourselves. Well, and I've said many times, uh, for me, it's hardwired. I've been most depressed and most suicidal at some of the best times in my life. Always worried back then, what's going to happen when it hits the fan? And I feel this way. And well, we now know. So, not situational in my case. Situation can trigger it like a bankruptcy, but not situational. So, what would you tell somebody's wife, like your wife? You know, how. How does your guys' relationship work? How, do, how does she help you? You know, how do you guys communicate um, so that she knows when things are, are going wrong or you need help or you what guys does support, are open? Yeah, what does support look like for you? Well, like I said, I, I tell her when I'm cycling down so that I'll, I'll snap at her out of nowhere and she wonders what she's done wrong. So I, I, you, have, you have to open up the lines of communication and be honest about how you're feeling. And she does the same for me. She goes, look, I'm really tired today or whatever it happens to be. So don't, you know, we give, what we say is we give each other amnesty for those moments. You know, don't take any offense and there's nothing to do with you. I'm just, you know, um, that, that helps a lot. And in the books we've written, book number two, it's all wrapped around automobile metaphors, the brain and the car, kind of, a, you know, back and forth like that. And one of the things we say is you, you need a pit crew like they have when you're racing cars. When you pull into the pit, you got an issue. You, know, you get surrounded by all these people, and they know what to do and know how to do it. So you have to surround. I believe you surround yourself with people that care about you and know what you're going through and are there. So it's set up in advance. If there's an issue, it's it's kind of like with a car. You know, you 
you buy a new car and I always get a AAA membership because I know it's sooner or later, even though the car is new, I'm going to have a flat tire, I'm going to run out of gas, I'm going to have keys out of my car, something. So you prepare ahead of time to just spare in the trunk and a jack and a first aid kit and flares because, you know, and and you also have to have, you know, my wife is well aware that I have a self-care plan, diet, exercise, good night, sleep, meditation, medication. And so that, that I got an email from a guy somewhere in Europe who had a lovely wife, darling eight-year-old daughter, 40 years old, great job, and said to me, Frank, I can't tell you the last time I was happy. And he was writing me because he'd come across one of my TED Talks. Because up to that point, he thought he was all alone feeling that way. And he goes, I saw your TEDx, and I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not a bipolar. And so I encouraged him, when time comes and you're comfortable, I think you should, should uh, you know, in the proper setting, come out to your wife, and then eventually to your daughter when she's ready, you know, when she, in, in terms she would understand. So they can be there for you. And then, you know, then your extended family, then friends and family at that point. My workout partner is, um, you know, he said to me one day, how are you feeling? I said, I'm wretchedly depressed. So what does that look like? He didn't say you should do this or you should do that. He goes, what's it look like? I said, well, remember when you're 18? He goes, yeah. Every other thought you had was about women? Yeah. He goes, what, what's, what's every other thought for you today? Going back home, crawling to bed, binge watching Netflix, second season of Ozark. <laughs> and then, you know, because I could give voice to that, we finished the workout. I got all the way through the workout. And I ended up not going home right away and crawling in bed. I got the rest of my day taken care of. Then I went home. You know, it got dark. Then I went to bed. But the, the mere fact that I can say, here's the thing. I get tired of saying, I'm good. When people say, how are you doing? Every now and then, when I'm tired, my editor goes to sleep. I, was, I got in an Uber after two, three hours since I've been to CE courses I taught. I'm exhausted. Nice young kid. Our eyes lock in the rear view mirror. He goes, how you doing, man? I go, I'm depressed and suicidal. How about you? He goes, what am I supposed to say to that? I go, you really want to know? He goes, yeah. I said, you're supposed to ask me if I have a plan. Pause. Do you have a plan? And then it, a longer pause, and he goes, does it involve Uber? <laughs> I hope Brilliant. You well. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah, the, just just being able to say out loud to my wife, I'm depressed, or my workout partner, I'm depressed, or somebody you know that calls up, how you doing? If I can, re- I can really tell them rather than having to cover it up. You know, it's uh, people with mental illness oftentimes great actors. That's why people don't realize, you know, that they are because they we don't. I don't want to burden anybody. If if they got bad though, you know, I, I I we have two handguns in the house. My wife has one. I have. People go, how can you do that? You you know you know you serve up. Here's the deal. If I got to the point where that was an issue, uh, I would march them across the street to my friend Randy. Go here, take these and don't give them back till I tell you, because I'm in a bad way and I just don't want to have these in the house. So it's you know it's it's all part of the process, learning process. Anyway, that's that's that, that's. That, that's sign symptoms and you know and, and solution. Oh, and one last thing. There's an outfit called NAMI National Alliance of Middle Illness. And mm-hmm. AMI. Pretty much in every county in the country, they've got an office. And they have um, peer-to-peer counseling, family to family counseling. Yeah, if your child is schizoaffected, they got a 12-week course for the family. Uh, on how what do you say, what don't you say? You know, how do you find resources? So a friend of mine who's an insurance agent, a friend in the chamber, commerce. 
That saved his family, saved his marriage, because they had a child schizo affected disorder. They were at loose ends. Somebody told about NAMI, took a 12-week course. I mean, it's not perfect, but the kids, this is 10 years later, the child's still alive, now a young man, and the family's still together. But they wouldn't survive without NAMI. The best thing about NAMI is that it's all free. They don't charge anything. So I'm a big proponent. Free help is always amazing. Yeah, and they, they you know, they raise money other ways. But yeah, it's, it's all free, all volunteer driven, all free. Well, yeah, because I've heard so, so often is, you know, we can't afford this. You know, we can't continue to afford, afford treatment. You know, it, they're a specialist, so it's a higher copay. And, you oh, know, yeah. just had to let this go so that we can eat for the week or, or, you know, pay our bills or whatever. And so I know that when it comes to mental health and substance abuse, a lot of people cannot afford to continue treatment. Mm-hmm. Which is a crying shame in the richest country in the world. Don't get me started. <laughs> I don't disagree. Yeah, at least with the ACA, they finally forced them to do parity between physical health and mental health in terms of coverages. Because before that, if I had a heart attack, covered 80-20 after my deductible. If I have a bipolar meltdown, well, you get six visits with a psychoanalyst this year. Yep. Yep. It's a challenge for sure. And I know people are struggling with, with mental health across the world, especially in the middle of this pandemic, because, you know, people just don't know how to handle this. And I'm, and I'm not surprised. And, you know, it's again, free resources are amazing. Like having you to talk to people all over the place and coming out and, and finding yourself on podcast and, and being the guest places in the TEDx talks, helping people, you know, that's, that's a thing that's that, that I wish there was a way to quantify the number of lives that that you and your story will will have impacted over time, and and I I want to thank you so much for coming on oh, yeah. and talking about that this here because it's such a a deep topic in our in our in our little niche here of the world that most people are afraid to talk about, and I'm, I appreciate you being willing to come on and tell your story and talk to people and give helpful things to people so that we can we can be more equipped to deal with with kids and trauma well and please put my cell phone number in the show notes and like i said if you're suicidal call the lifeline or text the text line if you're having a bad day call it crazy <laughs> because uh, or if there's someone you love is having a bad day and you have no idea you know resources what do i do or how do i speak to them or, you know what don't i i mean so i get calls like that where it's not the person but it's someone they love they just want to do the right thing, the best. So I just give advice like NAMI. You know, oh, your child's going to affect it. But listen, NAMI's got a 12-week course, one night a week. I'm telling you, it's life-changing. And it's free. So. Yeah, and to the people in the foster system, we have lots of kids that are affected by lots of things that we don't always know what they are up front. So yeah. educating yourself is a, is a game-changer. Yeah, I would say mental health first aid, take the if you have if you're dealing with foster children, take the youth version. It's all about young people and the signs and symptoms. That was mentalhealthfirstaid.org, right? Yep. And I'm sure they're doing it by Zoom nowadays, but they they if if let's say the pandemic wasn't raging, if you put your zip code in and put a twenty five mile radius, I'll bet you'll find a half dozen classes in the next month or so. Oh. All over the place. Yeah, I'll make sure I've gotten, I think, most of these written down. Uh, I'll make sure all these uh, websites and and all these pieces get put into the show notes so that people can find that. And um, for some reason, I've had some problem with Apple Podcasts lately. 
and the links don't tend to work on their show notes for some reason. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I can't figure that out. So if that doesn't work there, you can always go over to the website, fostercarenation.com, and you know you can just click on podcast notes. You'll find a picture that'll probably look a lot like Frank King, and <laughs> click on that one. The show notes there will work. Yeah, all these sure. wonderful, wonderful resources. Well, you know, it's like it's, it's, it's a matter of speaking up and educating, see something, say something. Suicide is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. And eight out of 10 people are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give in. So that tells me we can, and this is what I say at the end of every keynote, uh, we, can make, we can make a difference. We can save a life. And we can do it by doing something as, as simple as what we're doing right this minute, which is starting a conversation. Amen. Because conversation is is the is the key to to all of it. If we hide from it and we pretend it doesn't exist, it just it'll it can take down a, a lot of people that way. Yeah, silence kills. I'm afraid, and uh, the more we speak out about it, and, and if you live with somebody who's struggling with depression, I always suggest you and the person, adult, you know. A child of a certain age, because there's disturbing things in my TEDx. You have to make that decision. But sit down and watch my first TEDx. A matter of laugh or death. Because what I'm doing is I'm trying to decode for neuronormal people my thought process in terms of suicide. How, how do you get there? How do you get to that point? And I've had couples sit down where one spouse is depressed and the other isn't, and they watch it together and friend of mine said, he's neuronormal, she's got depression. And he's watching her watching me. When it gets done, and she never told anybody outside the family that she was living with depression. Very quiet about it. Stay-at-home mom, on medication, but it wasn't, you know. She turns to him after seeing me on stage. She goes, first of all, I didn't think anybody talked out loud about this stuff. And B, nobody goes on YouTube. We're gonna <laughs> distributed around the world, and so... It was a game changer for her. It was an epiphany. It, it, and I have a coffee clutch when you can do that kind of thing once a month. Get together with all my crazy friends. They're called the crazy coffee clutch. We take our game faces off, you know, the ones we show the world, and we're just ourselves for now. And she joined in the group. And I mean, it, it was, was life changing for her, I think, to realize how many of us are out there and that people talk about it openly. And, you know, it's, it's, Again, it's silence that kills. Yeah, and destigmatizing any sort of suicidal thoughts or problems, depression, destigmatizing that is the first step in, in that conversation. So I appreciate you being willing to do that and share your oh, story yeah. with the world, man, because, uh, you know, that's something I don't know how many people mention it, probably more than more than a couple have mentioned it to you, but the number of lives affected, uh, if, if you could, had a way to quantify that, I think it would probably probably have to to blow your your hair back a little bit to to realize yeah. the number of people there yeah you know because with youtube i mean uh i'm sure there are people i'll never know never meet that it had an impact like that on just seeing somebody else you know in the same boat especially if you thought you were all alone yeah you know and you know it's amazing that 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 generational effect that happens when you've helped one one person who then has kids and 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 passes that help on down the line. So the world will be different in a hundred years by a long stroke just because of what you're doing. Well, I got a DM from somebody the other day. Somebody reached out on Twitter to connect with, and she said something on the order of, "I can't believe it's you." She goes, "I was having the worst period of my life last fall." 
and I stumbled on your YouTube video. And I thought, well, if he can make it, but you gave me the courage to keep on and took a sabbatical from a job. Said the best thing I ever did. Got my, you know, together and went back to work. And, you know, I, I thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your story and, you know, and saving my life. So that's my why. That's what gets me out of bed tonight. Sounds like you saved more lives than the guy in the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. I'm still fascinated by everybody just staring at me. Oh, they either stare or they take out their phones and they record it. Yeah. Um, and and what shocked me was because as I'm running toward him, it's 300 people in this venue. You're supposed to have one of those AEDs, you know, uh, uh, the, the paddles. That yep. the, the, right. And I screamed at the um, whoever was working the room for the venue, get the AED. And this is what I hear. We don't have one. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Somebody get a car battery and a set of jumper cables. We'll exactly. I'm going to have to kiss this guy. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, well, guys, thanks ever so much for having me on. We appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us today and spreading your wisdom because this, this is a conversation that, that we believe needs to be started. Well, and I'm delighted you invited me because I mentioned that near the top, my, my wife was a foster child, a member of foster home, and the one foster mother that she's still in contact with probably saved her life. So she wouldn't be here if it were not for the foster kids. I'm, I'm grateful for all that they do. Thanks for listening to Frank's story. I hope you found some wisdom and knowledge here that you can take home to you and your family. Remember, we have a Patreon. If you'd like to support our mission with just a couple dollars a month, you can find us at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. If you'd like to connect with us on our Facebook page, you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. If you'd like to have your story featured on our show, reach out to us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. And as always, I think you guys are cool, cool, cool.